Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparable great power for us who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. There are a couple of moments within the Gospels where Jesus will engage with someone in a way that I at least find very interesting. For example, in Mark 10, in verse 35, James and John come to Jesus, and the text says that they ask him, we, or they, say, they begin by saying to him, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now that sounds like a pretty childish way to begin a conversation. My guess is that if anyone ever came to you and said, I'm going to ask you a question, but before I tell you what the question is, you have to promise me that you're going to say yes, you're going to have some reservations about whatever it is that they are about to ask you. And yet in the very next verse, Mark 10, 36, Jesus' response to them is, what do you want me to do for you? Now that doesn't guarantee that Jesus is going to do exactly what they ask him to do. In fact, if you keep reading the story, he does not go along with the request James and John make of him. But it's that moment where Jesus engages with them and asks, what do you want me to do for you that I find compelling? Over in John chapter 5, Jesus encounters a man who has been unable to walk for 38 years. And Jesus eventually does heal him and he's able to walk. But before he does, he asks him a question in John chapter 5. He asks him there at the end of that verse, do you want to get well? Now that sounds like a really odd question. I mean, if someone hasn't been able to walk for 38 years, obviously Jesus, they want to walk. And yet, apparently, Jesus begins by asking this question, do you want to get well? He engages this man. And apparently, it doesn't happen, but maybe we can deduce that if this man had said, no, he does not, then Jesus would have moved on. Jesus is not here to impose his agenda on this man. But he engages with him and meets him where he is so that he can be healed. 
seems amazing to me that the Son of God, the Savior of the world, would take the time to ask someone else what they want. I mean, James and John are asking Jesus this question with impure motives in Mark chapter 10, and Jesus could have responded, oh yeah, sure, James and John, I created the universe, but let me just drop everything and do whatever it is that you want me to do, because apparently you know better. And maybe that's how I would respond, and maybe it's another one of those instances where it's a good thing that I'm not Jesus. Because Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, uh, he engages in this moment. Uh, He engages this man who can't walk in order to meet his needs. And, And again, that doesn't mean that Jesus will just do whatever it is that we want him to do, but it does mean that Jesus is inviting us into an experience of who he is. He is not forcing his will upon us, even though he does know better than we do, and he does desire that we would experience what he desires for us to experience, but there is an invitation. Jesus saying, what is it that you want me to do for you? as you come into this journey of life with me. And I wonder what you might say if Jesus asked what you wanted him to do for you. I don't know if I have a good answer of what I would say. Maybe we would start with the big things and say, I want want world peace, I want an end to hunger, I want an end to poverty. Maybe we're not quite that noble and we ask just for health or for safety, for myself or for my family. Maybe we ask for healing for ourselves or for someone that we care about. Maybe we ask for success in business, in school, or in life. Maybe we ask for Jesus to show us what the future holds so that I can be confident of where things are going for myself or for my kids. And I'm not suggesting that Jesus would grant that request. But as we look at the second half of Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, we get a glimpse into what Paul is asking God to do in the life of the Ephesians. And I think it gives us a glimpse of what we might want to ask Jesus to do for us. There might be all sorts of things that we want Jesus to do, but before we need any of those things, what we need most is the life Paul gives us a glimpse of in these verses. Before we need anything else from Jesus, We need an experience of his rule and reign. The resurrection of Jesus is not just an event from history, although it is an event from history. The resurrection of Jesus is not just some nice comforting spiritual truth, although it is a spiritual truth that brings us comfort. It is a present reality that God calls us to experience. There might be all sorts of things that we would want Jesus to do for us, and not all of those things are bad, but before we get to any of those requests or demands or whatever they might be, we need to experience the reality of the resurrection of Jesus at work in us and then align our requests accordingly. That's the life Jesus came to bring us. And this is all available because of the truths we read about in this passage and in the opening of the letter that we covered last week. If you notice, as Gail read the text for us just now, it begins with the phrase, for this reason, which tells us that all of this is building off of that long sentence we looked at last week where Paul is calling us to praise God because of all that he has done through the death and resurrection of Jesus and his present gift of the presence of the Holy Spirit among us. And that celebration, that praise, leads into the prayer of this passage. Paul is now taking the high theology of that praise that we looked at last week and making it tangible. He is not just leaving all of those spiritual truths of verses 3 to 14 in the realm of the theoretical. He wants us to experience it for ourselves because that's far better. 
If someone asks you to describe your favorite meal to them, you could give them a detailed report of what it's like to uh, go to the restaurant and order it and all the ingredients that go into it. You could talk about the process of making it yourself or a loved one making it for you if it's something like that. And you could go into all the detail and walk through all the ingredients and say that this spice complements that and it makes the taste amazing and it's this great thing. Or you could just take them and have them taste the food for themselves. And at least in my opinion, getting to eat is far better than having someone explain to you what, it, what food tastes like. And that's the shift Paul's making between the passage we looked at last week to the passage we're looking at today. He's going from describing the recipe to asking us to taste this meal for ourselves. He's described the life that's available in Jesus, and now he prays not just that the Ephesians would understand the finer points of theological doctrine, but that they would experience the resurrection of Jesus in their own lives. And I don't want to assume too much, but I think that if Paul was present among us this morning, he would want the same thing for us. That right here, right now, no matter who you are, no matter how well or how poor life is going for you right now, that you would experience the reign of Jesus. So if that is true, we should probably look at the things that Paul prays about. And he begins by giving thanks for the church in Ephesus. This was a city, this, these were people that Paul knew well. In the book of Acts, we're told that he spends three years in Ephesus preaching about Jesus. But time has passed since then. It's been somewhere between five and seven years between when Paul left Ephesus in Acts 19 and when he writes this letter here. So that means there are people that he has lost touch with. That means there are people that he's not been able to see in a long time. That means there are stories of what has happened in this church that he has not heard. It means that there are people that have come to know Jesus since he left there that he has never met. And Paul's in prison as he writes these words, which means that his prospects of visiting Ephesus in the near future aren't exactly great. And yet the first thing he wants the Ephesians to know about his prayer life is that he is giving thanks for them. He does not stop doing so as he remembers them in his prayers. He may not be as physically close to the Christians in Ephesus as he has been in the past, but he is as spiritually close to them as he has ever been and as grateful for them as ever. And, because, and all of that is because, as he says in verse 15, of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all God's people. Our experience of the reign of Jesus begins by giving thanks to God. Yet he continues into verse 17 to say that he keeps asking that God would give them a, a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that, he, that they may know him better. And at first glance, verse 17 might sound like a contradiction to what Paul has just said. I mean, he just said he's grateful for the fact that they believe in Jesus, that they love one another, and that's the most basic commandment. Jesus said all the Old Testament can be boiled down to love God and love one another, and the Ephesians seem to have that down. And then Paul asked that they would know God better. He's just said at the end of the passage we looked at last week that they've been marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit and that demonstrates that, they're, that they are God's children, that the Holy Spirit has been given to them like a deposit, promising them of the life that he has in store for them in the future. And now he prays that they would know God better, that he would give them his spirit of wisdom and revelation. I mean, did Paul just forget what he just said? Well, maybe. But it seems more likely that he wants them to have what they already have in ways that are continually deeper and richer. 
Ephesians is not like other letters where Paul is confronting specific issues within a church and he's correcting the people there and calling them to repent of their sin and, and follow the commands of God or things like that. He is asking that the Ephesians would experience more of what they have already experienced in Christ. He's saying that they have not yet arrived at complete maturity in Jesus, which is the case for all of us in this life. And he isn't saying that, that, they're not, that means that they're not good enough and therefore they need to achieve some higher standard of spirituality so that they can earn the love of God. But he is saying that in the sense that this is the life God has created them for and Paul wants them to experience it more and more each and every day because it's the reality of any relationship that you never fully plumb the depths of who another person is. Even for a human being, no matter how long you know them, no matter how well you know them, there are still things you find out about them that you did not know. On our drive to church this morning, Whitney told me that her favorite donuts are apple cider donuts. I'll be completely honest, I had never heard of apple cider donuts before this morning. Much less did I know that they were her favorite donuts. But I've learned something this morning. Almost, it took me a year of marriage to get there. And if things like that are true of another human being, how much more true is it of an infinite and perfect God? Because we experience resurrected life, it is a life of continual growth and deeper experience of who God is and what he has done for us and what that means for us. And for that reason, Paul prays for the Ephesians, and I think we should pray for ourselves, that no matter how long we have known God, that we would more deeply experience the life he desires for us. But this is not something we do on our own. We are able to carry it out because of the gift of God. If you look again at verse 17, this is not something Paul is calling the Ephesians to make happen for themselves. He's not calling them to, to really buckle down in their Bible reading and block off an hour of their schedule each and every day for prayer and fasting so that they could really finally grow up in their faith in Jesus. He's not asking them to experience life with God as a status that they reach for themselves. It is something Paul is asking God to do for them. As they experience the sort of life Paul has described, as they walk in this resurrected life with Jesus day by day, Paul prays that God would give them a fuller and deeper understanding of who he is and what he is doing in their lives. Paul prays that they would be empowered by God to grow into all that God desires for them to be, that as they walk with God, they would have deeper understandings of his grace as this cycle continues of God giving and his people responding by stepping into what he desires for us. And Paul describes what that experience looks like in verses 18 to 21. And if I can try to summarize all that he says in those verses, it is that they would know the past, present, and future power of the resurrection. When we have that, Paul says that we will know the hope to which God has called us, which is the glorious inheritance he has in store. And again, that might sound like an odd way to phrase things. A, a hope tends to be a vague thing, at least when we tend to use the word. I mean, you, you hope that rain will come so that your garden will produce. You hope that the Vikings will win. You want a particular thing to happen, but there's nothing you can really do about it, so you just hope. You have this vague feeling that, that maybe, hopefully, what I want will come about. If you know something will happen, it makes no sense to hope about it, because you have certainty that it's going to happen. And so it seems like a contradiction to say that Paul wants us to know the hope that we have in Jesus. Yet Paul prays that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened so that we would know the hope that we have. He's not saying we should wish that maybe one day we could have life with God. He is asking God to give us a sense in the present of the hope that is fully on the way in Jesus. 
And if it is true, as Paul said at the beginning of this chapter, that the Holy Spirit dwelling in us is a down payment of something better to come in the future, Paul prays that here and now we would tangibly experience in the present the power of what is to come in full in the future because of the death and resurrection of Jesus in the past. Because God raised Jesus from the dead in the past, that means he has ascended into heaven and is currently reigning over all things, seated at God's right hand with all his work completed. There have been times in my life when I've been at my parents' house, either when I was younger or when I'm visiting, where my dad would come home from work for the day and I would have something I needed his help with or he had a project he needed my help uh, getting done while I was there and he would say something to the effect of, well, we better do it now because if I sit down in that recliner, it's not getting done today. When you sit in the recliner, the work is done. When you sit down, you're done. And Paul's saying something similar when he says that Jesus is seated at God's right hand. He is reigning right here and right now as the resurrected king of all things with complete power and authority now and for all time. And that's a message we need to hear, no matter when or where we are living. The Ephesians needed to hear this message because they lived in a world full of options for divine connection, whether it was through other gods or magical incantations or whatever it might be. Like I said earlier, we know from history, we know from reading the book of Acts a little bit of what this, was look, what this looked like. In Acts chapter 19, we're told about Paul's time of doing ministry in the city of Ephesus, and there's a number of things that happen there. The first thing that happens is Paul performs some miraculous healings, he casts out some evil spirits, and so some people see that and think, well, Paul must have some sort of formula that if I can copy, I can steal it, and I can do the same thing. But what happens is that they try to cast out evil spirits in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, and the result is that the man who's possessed by an evil spirit beats them up and they have to run away naked and bleeding, which is not exactly how they expected that to go. But it shows that Jesus is not some impersonal force that can be sold to the highest bidder. After this, we're told that a number of people come to believe in Jesus and that some of these people who listen to Paul and begin following Jesus had uh, previously practiced sorcery. And so as a means of detaching from everything they had known before they, before they knew Jesus, they round up all of their scrolls of magical spells and incantations, and they hold a public burning of them. And as they're doing that, someone does the math and figures out that they've just burned about 50,000 drachmas worth of scrolls. Now, in the ancient world, a drachma is the payment for a day's wages. And so 50,000 drachmas is roughly a person's salary for 140 years. That's how many scrolls of magical spells they collected, and they give it all up because of Jesus. After that, some of the silversmiths in Ephesus who make their living by making idols of false gods for people to take and put in their homes, they realize that if people keep believing in this message that Paul is preaching, he's going to dry up our market share pretty quick, and so we need to do something about that. And so a riot breaks out because the silversmiths city are trying to put a stop to Paul's preaching and the people gather and there's a great commotion because Ephesus is famous for being the home of the temple of the goddess Artemis and so they're defending the honor of their city and the goddess that they worship against the message of Jesus and eventually the riot calms down but Paul has to leave Ephesus. These are all things that happen in the city where Paul is now writing this letter it's a city that completely revolves around the worship of this goddess Artemis 
and all of these spells and magical incantations and spiritual forces and whatever else there might be. When people think of Rochester, Minnesota, they tend to think of the Mayo Clinic. And in the same way, when people thought of Ephesus in the first century, they thought of their temple that they had built to the goddess Artemis. It was one of the wonders of the world. That was the hub around which everything in the city of Ephesus rotated. It's a city filled with sorcerers and magicians and people claiming to be able to get you access to the divine through their incantations and offerings, that if you'll just follow their advice, you will be able to manipulate the invisible forces of the world to get them to do what you want them to do. And to people living in that city, Paul says, don't buy the lie. Sure, the city around you says you just need to make a few more offerings and recite a couple spells and whatever it may be. And Paul says to them that Artemis is not the center of the universe. Jesus is. Life does not revolve around that temple in the middle of your city. It revolves around the fact that Jesus is currently reigning in heaven over all things and he will continue to do so for all eternity. The city around you might say you need this, that, or the other to connect with the spiritual forces around you, but Jesus rules over it all, over every rule, power, authority, dominion, and name now and for all time because he has risen from the dead. And we might not have the same pulls around us, but I think we need to hear that same message. The Ephesians lived in a world that saw spirituality as something to manipulate for your purposes, and if Jesus could be mixed into that, great, and if not, well, maybe you needed something else to help you get ahead in life. We live in a world that tends to not be overly offended by the message of Jesus, but assumes he's one option among many, and maybe that works for you, and as long as it helps you, that's fine, but you might need something else as well. You might need the right investments. You might need to live in the right neighborhood. You might need membership in the right clubs. You might need something else. And to the world of the Ephesians and to us, the Apostle Paul says, Jesus rules over all things. His name is above every name. He rules heaven and earth. His name is not to be placed alongside any government or policy or career or family as a means to an end of success and happiness. He is the end himself. He rules and reigns over all things because he's resurrected from the dead and he's sitting at the right hand of God right here and right now. He is the one we trust in above all else to find the direction for our purpose and our existence. He's the reigning, resurrected son of God. And he invites us into life with him. And that life, that rule and reign of Jesus is to be experienced among God's people. The reign of Jesus is not some vague thing that's happening out in the heavens, but is to be made apparent here and now through God's people, the church. It's right here. It's in the church where all of this talk of Jesus reigning over all things because he's resurrected from the dead is communicated and made real to a watching world. It's in the church where we move from talking in theory about what our favorite meal is to actually tasting it for ourselves. It's in the church where a world that is hurting hears the message that can heal him and see, heal them and sees it acted out as God's people walk in resurrected life with Jesus through the presence of his Holy Spirit. It's in the church where the reality of the reign of Jesus in the heavenly realms is made known. Most of the time our world asks for evidence, and that's not always bad. Our world acts under the assumption that if you can't see it, if you can't measure it, if you can't put it in a test tube, then it doesn't exist. And so in a world like that, to say that Jesus rules over the heavenly realms, it sounds a little vague and maybe unhelpful. It might sound like Jesus isn't invested in this world or as if he's only concerned about the future or the internal or just all the things that we can't currently see and measure, and that is not what Paul is saying. 
He's saying that Jesus rules the heavenly realms, and that rule and reign is invading this realm through his church. It's in the church where we experience the fullness of the rule and reign of the resurrected Christ. And you might hear that and think that I'm overselling it a little bit. You might look around this room and think, I know some of these people, they're imperfect just like I am. I'm not sure how this can be true about us. You might look around this building and think, yeah, this is just the building. I helped build it. It's not anything to write home about. I get that. This is just a group of imperfect people trying to figure out how to follow Jesus together. But there's more to that story. No matter what might be true about this church or any other church, no matter what imperfections the church has, this is the place where God makes himself known. It's in the church that the message of Jesus, that he has died and risen from the dead and currently rules over all things and will one day return to make all things new, is proclaimed. It's in the church where we offer the world of the resurrected life that God desires for all humanity. It's in the church where we care for the hurting and the broken so that they can be healed through the message of Jesus. It's in the church where we enter into people's mess instead of running away from it because that's what Jesus has done for us. It's in the church where we love our enemies because that's how Jesus lived. It's in the church where we desire to have the eyes of our heart enlightened so that we may know God more and more each day as we experience the reign of Jesus. So that means that each and every one of us are left with the question of whether or not we are currently experiencing the reign of Jesus. And if we are not, then the next question is, why is that? And I don't ask that question because I'm trying to make you feel guilty or question your salvation or anything like that. I mean, if you just look at this passage, you can see that the point of all of this is not for us to do things to earn God's favor or anything like that, but I do think we can ask ourselves and one another if we are doing what Paul describes in these verses and desiring to experience the knowledge of God and the power of the resurrection of Jesus who currently reigns over all things and whether or not we are trying to experience that more and more each day. And that's not because we're all working really hard to attain some goal, because we've been called to walk God in light of the resurrection of Jesus and life lived in light of his resurrection is experienced among God's people as we walk in life with him and that's the life God desires for you no matter who you are so if you hear this passage and think yeah that's that does not sound like me at all I'm not saying that you should feel guilty and wonder why God speaks to some people and not to not to you The answer is to seek God first and foremost, to humble ourselves before him and and pursue the things Paul describes in this passage. Maybe you've never experienced that for yourself and you're still working out what it means. If you have questions about that, that's what we're here to figure out together as a church. We're not afraid of your questions, but as people that are following Jesus together, we want to walk alongside one another and wrestle with those questions well so that we can come to a deeper understanding of who God is and the life he invites us to experience. Maybe you're familiar with the message of Jesus, but it's time to take the next step of whatever that is. Maybe you need to be baptized because you have never done that. Maybe you need have sin you need to repent of. Maybe there is some other step of obedience that God is calling you to and you need to do that so that you can more deeply experience life with him. 
Maybe there is sickness or pain that you are dealing with and you just need people to come alongside you and pray with you so that you can know the presence of God at work even in the midst of, of suffering. No matter who you are, my, I speak for myself, the rest of the staff and the elders when I say we are here to talk, to pray, to encourage, to walk with you as you follow Jesus wherever he leads. Because life with God is the end goal of all that we do. We walk in life with the resurrected Jesus because that's the life he calls us into. And that is where we find true life as individuals. And as we walk, walk alongside one another as the hands and feet of Jesus here and now. He's the head of all things. He reigns over the universe. And yet he also comes near to us so that we might know him and be a part of his people. He's the one that we pursue. His is the character we model ourselves after. His life is the one we seek to emulate. It's him that we honor, and only through being united with him and with one another do we truly understand life with God. Jesus reigns, now and forever. So experience that for yourself. Let's pray. God, we thank you that even right now your son is ruling and reigning over all things and that he will for all eternity. So in light of that truth, God, we ask that you would help us to respond with faith wherever that leads. That you would be glorified through us. That your will would be done here and now in us as your people. That you would be glorified now and always in all we do. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.